Well, we're very excited to have Elena Dugar with us today, in part because she is an expert on a topic that most of us academics working in the sovereign debt area know very little about, or perhaps I should correct that to say that I know very little about, even though I have to use the products that companies like the one she works for make all the time. And yet I have so many questions. So Elena uh, works at Moody's and I know her because I've seen her speak at a variety of sovereign debt conferences on the podium. I'm usually far in the back and don't get to ask a question because there are too many other people who have <laughs> questions. But she was kind enough to agree to come on my podcast. And so Mark and I get to ask all of the questions that we have. So I'm going to start with the question that I most want to ask before Mark can jump in. And that's the question of whether and when do rating agencies for sovereigns take into account the contract terms? And so just to give you some concrete examples of what I'm thinking about, do the rating agencies, for example, give different ratings to bonds that have strong collective action clauses versus weak collective action clauses? versus no collective action clauses, or to take a different example, do they give different ratings to bonds that are, are governed by, say, Italian local law versus uh, Italian bonds governed by New York law? How does that work? First, thank you very much for having me. I have learned from both of you so much over the years and really appreciate being here. So thank you for that. I'm happy to answer uh, as many questions about the ratings as I, as I can, but maybe let me start from the beginning because sometimes I feel it's misunderstood what the ratings are. So if, if you allow me, let me let me start there and then I'll address the, the contractual provisions in the bond contracts. Of course, that's be even better. <laughs> thank you. Okay, so ratings. So first, ratings are an assessment of the capacity and willingness of governments to repay government debt. So they're not, they're not a rating on the economy. They're not a rating on public policy. They're not a rating on market access. And all these things feed into the rating. But the rating itself addresses a very narrow aspect, and it's really the debt repayment capacity. So with that in mind, uh, let me just give you the you know, one minute, 101 on, on how we derive ratings, just to give a better sense of what, what they are. There are four things that we think about when we think about sovereign ratings. The first one is economic strength. And these are things that have to do with the, the growth potential of the economy, the scale of the economy, income levels, generally the things that have to do with, with economic strength as the economy is effectively the revenue base of the government. The second set of factors that we look at has to do with institutions and governance strength. So these are things like the quality of institutions, uh, policy effectiveness in terms of fiscal policy and monetary policy. And again, it's institutional strength, again, through that very narrow lens as how it refers to debt repayment capacity. The third thing that we look at is fiscal strength. And these are 
essentially things that has to do that have to do with the government fiscal balance sheet. So the things like the debt burden, debt affordability, uh, debt trends, the um, uh, the structure of government debt, uh, potential public sector debt contingent liabilities. So on the other side, on the other hand, sovereign wealth funds. And then the fourth factor that we that we look at is we call it susceptibility to event risk, but it has to do with event risks, which could lead to sudden rating transitions, if you will. And this includes things like political risk, the domestic political risk or geopolitical risk, uh, government liquidity risk, banking sector risk, and external vulnerability. So these are kind of the four aspects that we look at uh, when we think about uh, sovereign ratings and how we get to, to, uh, to our sovereign ratings. Now to come on point two, to your questions about the contractual terms of, of the debt, uh, we the contractual terms of, of the of the debt contracts contracts do matter, and I'll give you at least a couple of examples where they have mattered. Uh, we have the Argentina example in 2014, where we had split ratings on Argentina debt because uh, the foreign law bonds, which were potentially and eventually impacted by the U.S. court rulings, effectively carried the higher risk compared to the rest of, of for Argentina's bonds. Also, there are examples, and there's less of this now than in the past, but there are examples where uh, we had made in the past distinction between uh, local local debt and, and uh, external debt or, or local currency debt and, and foreign currency debt. And there were, there were uh, periods in the past where Moody's had uh, rated uh, local currency debt higher than, than uh, foreign currency debt. Now, the, the particular sort of foreign local currency and then uh, foreign local law distinction, I think, has has uh, reduced over time. And that has to do with just globalization and the, the kind of spillovers of, of, uh, of crisis in the economy from the foreign sector to the domestic sector and from the domestic sector to the external sector. And we currently uh, rate uh, foreign and local currency debt at the same rating level. So for, for the vast majority of countries, uh, we don't make that distinction anymore. But this is just a couple of examples where the contractual provisions have mattered. So if you don't mind, I, I wanted to ask a, a somewhat related question, although I didn't mean to cut you off. So um, maybe I'll ask my, my question. And then if there was more you wanted to say about the the relevance of contract terms, um, we can pick up there. But I, I wanted, when you're ready, to ask a question about the DSSI, the Debt Service Suspension Initiative, which is sort of maybe the most prominent uh, debt relief mechanism at present for addressing the, the costs of the pandemic. And, and the particular question I, I wanted to ask has to do with the ratings consequences of uh, a country seeking relief under the DSSI. I know that the, the Institute of International Finance, the IIF, um, which is a, a, an industry group, has been quite vocal in warning countries that there might be adverse ratings consequences for seeking relief under the DSSI. And so I really wanted to, to find out more from you about the implications from a ratings standpoint of a country seeking COVID-related relief under that program. But again, I, I'm sorry if I, if I cut you off too early. 
No, no. Uh, I, I just wanted to happy to address. I just wanted to answer the the CAC's question uh, directly, and I, I sort of wanted to lay the ground a little bit of what ratings are because it, it's coached within that meaning of how we see ratings. The so currently, if you take a bond with uh, say a, a standard uh, CAC's clause in it versus a bond which now has the new aggregate CAC's clauses in it, uh, we would generally not make a distinction in the rating between the two bonds. And the reason is the following. For us to make a rating decision, so I'm not saying that the contractual terms don't, don't matter, but for us to make a rating decision, there has to be a very material uh, difference in the risk of the two bonds. So one notch, one notch difference in the rating levels is equivalent to approximately 60% difference in the expected loss. So the probability of default or the loss given default. And we don't think that uh, just changing the in the to the aggregate CAX uh, terms gives us that that kind of a large difference in the uh, either in the probability of default or the loss given given default. So that was that was kind of the the short answer on uh, why we don't make a currently distinction between the the regular say the regular CAX clauses and the aggregate uh, CAX clause. Elena, before you get to the DSSI, yeah. I, I just want to ask a, clar a clarification uh, on that. That, that was su super helpful. So um, if I understand you correctly, for the most part, individual contract terms, even something as important as a modification provision, which are arguably the most important provisions in these contracts beyond the financial terms, you know, it, it, it's not um, something that would change the, change, give you a one notch change in ratings. So then it's not going to come into play. And so the, the question I want to ask about this is is the process uh, different for, um, say, a domestic uh, high yield corporate bond? Are the ratings more fine-tuned for those than they are for sovereigns? Or is this sort of a similar, are the methodologies largely similar? I know this is super basic, but. So the corporate's bond where, where the contract provisions would matter is the waterfall of payments say in a bankruptcy. So it, it would make a, that, that would, uh, depending on, Kind of what the waterfall of payments uh, in in uh, in the bankruptcy say it, it looks like it will make a difference to the lost given default part of the rating. So it's more I think there it directs it's more directly related to to the recoveries in sovereign. I think it becomes a bit uh, more disconnected from the from the recovery in a way or from the from the overall loss in the rating. I think it's because the for sovereigns you know if we look at the probability of default part. Yeah. Sovereigns, I think so far, you know, the vast majority of defaults are capacity to repay issues rather than willingness to repay issues. So it's really the decision to default. I think it's more more governed by this is what the economic situation is at the time. This is what the, the debt sustainability situation is at the time, rather than the contractual provision. And also, when you look at the loss given default, again, to a large extent, uh, uh, yes, aggregate CACs could reduce the incentives for holdout litigation. But I think if you look at aggregate recoveries, again, they're probably uh, in the aggregate more led by what the financial situation of, of the country is at the time. Now, there could be exceptions, and it's something that we do look at and we monitor, we monitor the evolution of the contractual course, uh, clauses. And we do look at things on a case-by-case -case basis because 
I can think of, and this is a theoretical at this point, but if you have sort of willingness to pay concerns and the, say the country's debt is concentrated in one large bond issue, you could see uh, the bond clauses kind of making it easier potentially for the sovereign to push through higher losses in the restructuring. So you could you could have a situations where it actually matters much more materially. That's that that is that's really interesting. I, I I'm so glad I'm already learning so much, but it's interesting also that you talk about how the the sort of how you think about capacity to pay and willingness to pay. A couple of weeks ago, we had uh, Patrick Bolton and Ugo Panitza, who you know, I think, uh, both among the most prominent economists who studied this. And they were talking about how in the mainstream economics literature about sovereign debt, people are still sort of obsessed with the willingness to pay problem, even though the data all seem to show that it's really capacity to pay that drives uh, most sovereign default scenarios, uh, all except maybe one that we have seen in the last many decades. But I, I think even they would be surprised that the rating agencies have been ahead of us in already incorporating that insight. But um, Mark is probably mad at me for not letting you get to the DSSI question that I'm very interested in too. But, uh, but so I'll shut up now. Okay, so the on the DSSI, uh, so the official sector DSSI is not the default under our long-standing methodologies, and the reason is that our ratings do not our ratings apply to private sector debt. Our ratings do not address the risk on official sector debt. So the maturity extension, this, which is what the, the DSSI is, a maturity extension on the official sector that would not be a default under our definition. Where there's a linkage between the official sector DSSI and the private sector debt and ratings is through two channels. One channel is the comparability of treatment provision under which the official sector debt relief could result in non-payment or maturity extensions on the private sector debt. And two is the existence of cross-default clauses in the debt contracts under which official sector debt moratorium could potentially trigger a legal, in the legal sense, a default on the bank loans or, or, some, or, or some bond contracts. So for, for ratings purposes, what matters is uh, are there losses that materialize on the private sector debt? So for in terms of our rating management, and let me just address the, the DSSI issue and I'm happy to have to discuss broader later. But for, for the DSSI, uh, because of this risk of the comparability of treatment provision, which is there uh, in the Paris Club term sheet, and it was not clear at the beginning whether this will be, whether par private sector participation will be uh, enforced or not. We had actually put on review uh, five sovereign ratings and it was just back, back at the beginning of the initiative. And it was just five sovereigns and it was for credits where there was a significant amount of private sector debt outstanding and where the rating was at the level that was not consistent with risk of losses for, for private creditors. And we had been very transparent from the very beginning and in, it was in our press releases uh, that we will confirm the ratings at their current levels if participation in the DSSI uh, didn't entail a default on the private sector debt. And we subsequently have resolved the, the 
the reviews and the ratings were confirmed at the current uh, rating levels. So we have not seen a, a downgrade because of the official sector uh, maturity extension as part of the DSSI. So uh, thank you for that. And I, I'm, I hope you'll forgive if I ask one more question, um, and maybe that would be the, that can take us into our break. But I'm still so fascinated by the these transmission channels that you reference between um, asking for relief under the DSSI and private sector debt. It seems to me that there's, you know, there's an alternative universe out there somewhere where participating in the DSSI program sort of does what the program was touted as um, as aiming to accomplish. That is to say, you know, a country participates in the SSI, it gets some temporary uh, debt relief from its official creditors, and that genuinely frees it to devote material resources to, to mitigating the, the health care and the economic consequences of the pandemic. And you know, if that were true, I would think that, that there would be a positive transmission channel from the perspective of, of assessing sovereign risk. And maybe there's even a, a yet another um, alternative universe where there's another positive transmission channel in that money that's not going to the official sector creditors is, is not being used to fight the pandemic, but it's being channeled to pay private sector creditor debt. So I'm just wondering, um, what do we, this is a, 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 a judgment that the ratings agencies don't have to make, I, I understand, but I'm hoping you can shed a little light on what um, we should make of the, the impact of the DSSI program. Because there don't seem to be these positive transmission channels, it sounds like one implication is that the program is kind of irrelevant. Is that too strong a statement, do you think? I think the positives are there, right? So the, the funds which are being uh, reprioritized to address the health crisis and uh, the to support uh, social, social purposes and to support the, the recovery, I think that is the beneficial effect of, of the uh, DSSI initiative itself. When we look at, at credit perspective, we look at the overall credit worthiness of the country. And in fact, we look at uh, kind of the medium term credit worthiness. So we're looking at you know, what that sustainability and what credit worthiness will look like three to five years out. So from a credit perspective, you know, the DSSI is taking place in the context of very widespread deterioration in credit quality and, and very uh, kind of a relatively large deterioration in credit quality across sovereigns and also across sectors globally as well. But say, for example, for the emerging markets, we are expecting that the average debt to GDP ratio will be 10 to 50 percentage points higher two years from now. And that's only on the current economic baselines. And we know that the risk on the economic sides are all high and to the downside. So, you know, countries are going through sharp falls in foreign exchange receipts from exports, falls in foreign direct investment, falls in remittances. We're looking at financing gaps for Africa that are widening by four to five percentage points of GDP only this year. And against this, the DSSI debt relief is between half a percent and about 3% of GDP. So it's it's for, for the majority of, it is within the rated portfolio. The, the relief from the DSSI is just modest relative to the coronavirus induced fiscal pressures. 
So the overall effect is, is uh, you know, it's more potentially more challenge credit worthiness over the medium term, but it's just because the, the debt relief so far has been more less relative to the deterioration in, in fiscal metrics. Well, thank, thank you. That's, that's really helpful. And like me too, I'm uh, perhaps even more than me too. This is really, really um, informative for me. I think maybe we can uh, take a short break and then come back and um, pick up with a bit more about the DSSI. Sound good? Sounds good. I'm going to ask you uh, in some ways to repeat probably what you said to Mark, but I, I think it's really important, at least for me, to confirm the understanding because my impression is there are lots of us who get uh, confused about ratings and yields, and defaults for purposes of ratings and defaults for purposes of contracts and for purposes of credit defaults. Uh, so to lay all the confusion out there, now I, I want to ask the, the question, which I believe is restating uh, Mark's question slightly differently. So I took what you said to be that if a country takes relief from the official sector, uh, such as the, that that was offered under the DSSI, and the rating agency decides look, this is relief that's actually going to help the country's economy. And they need to do that because COVID is causing mayhem. That would actually be a positive thing for the country. And if we look at research, uh, I think there's a recent paper, very interesting paper by Andrea Presbitero and co-authors from the IMF that shows contrary to, I think, what many in the private sector were asserting, what they seem to show is that countries that took relief under the DSSI didn't have any worse yields than uh, countries that didn't take relief. And that seems to be consistent with what you were saying about both the philosophy of the ratings and what actually happened with the ratings. Is, is that sort of correct translation there? So the, there's this, there is a difference between market signals and ratings. And I feel there's a bit of confusion in some of the debates around the DSSI. So let me make two, two points here. So for, for rating purposes, I was saying, we look at medium term country fundamentals. So we look at what that sustainability would look like three to five years out. and Again, you have the benefits from the from the DSSI in terms of supporting the recovery against the overall shock that the coronavirus crisis is bringing, and that that trade-off is this is a country-by-country country analysis, right? This will be uh, how this plays out will be different for for the different countries. But there's an important difference between spreads and other market signals and ratings. So ratings balance out two properties: point-in-time accuracy and stability. So ratings are much less volatile than spreads and market signals. And ratings also experience far fewer reversals compared to, to market signals. So with respect to the, so just keeping that in mind, uh, with respect to the DSSI, I think there's a bit of confusion in the debate between 
the rating agency's reaction to the to potential private sector debt relief and the market's reaction to private sector debt relief. And the question in front of policymakers is really uh, the trade-off or the potential trade-off between the benefits of debt relief now versus potential cost to market access in the future. And that, that's really a policy policy decision. Can we shift Did gears? I, yeah. you know, I, I, that was um, uh, helpful to me, especially because I, um, I think I had been unduly pessimistic maybe about the, um, the possibility that the DSSI might have some positive impact from a ratings perspective. Although, although certainly I take, um, I take the point that um, the amounts are small and I take, also take the point about the difference between market signals and the, the ratings. I'm hoping to shift gears a little bit. Um, although I, I confess, I think my question is not going to get any more sophisticated than, than what we've already been asking. But to, to shift away from the poorest countries who are the beneficiaries of DSSI to the role of ratings agencies in assessing uh, major rich economies. And, and we've certainly seen recent downgrades there, such as uh, for the UK. And I, I want to link this discussion to one of the, the pillars of ratings that you had mentioned earlier, which, as I understood it, um, linked to sort of institutional and governance um, strength versus weakness. And uh, you know, my understanding, at least of the, the downgrade to the UK, was that a perceived deterioration in governance was um, one of the drivers uh, of that change. And um, so I guess the, the, the simplistic question is what kinds of governance dysfunction are especially important in this context? Um, and maybe the more particular version of that question is when's the downgrade for the US coming? Since um, uh, it's hard to see the US as um, uh, on a positive governance trajectory these days. So from, from again, from a credit perspective, we look at governance with respect to servicing debt, right? So it's whether uh, policymaking or the kind of institutional framework uh, affects uh, debt repayment capacity and affects uh, fiscal policy decisions or affects debt sustainability or the debt part of the debt trend uh, in the future. So we look again, you know, even from a ESG perspective, governance is a, a key consideration in sovereign ratings and then as I was saying in the beginning, institutional strength is one of our main uh, rating factors. But to address has on your, your question on the US, uh, with respect to the US, uh, we have a AAA stable rating on the US uh, at the moment. We do incorporate institutional strength in our credit assessment. So the US institutional strength is currently scored as AA2. It's not a AAA. So we do. Uh, acknowledge that the noisy policy making in Washington uh, makes some of the uh, debt decision kind of more difficult to, to make. But for the US, the US enjoys, you know, when you think about the overall uh, credit worthiness of the US, US enjoys uh, extraordinary, extraordinary economic scale, diversity, competitiveness, so very, very high strength uh, on the economy. Uh, and it also enjoys the unique role of the dollar and the US treasury bond market in the global financial system. So 
it, it's that this leads to very low exposure to government liquidity risk or balance of payments risks. In fact, for us, the driver for the US rating going forward is, is fiscal strength. So it's fiscal strength and, and the debt trajectory in itself. The US has one of the highest debt levels in the AAA universe. And if you look at debt projections, the debt trajectory arises going forward. And a large part of that rise is due to age-related entitlement spending. So the key, if you will, to the US rating in the longer run is what, what happens to entitlement spending. So Elna, um, I want to ask more about this in the US context. Uh, although I, People are probably going to think we're crazy asking about uh, US debt. But it strikes me from a layperson's perspective and I, I mean layperson, especially in terms of my understanding of macroeconomics that I, I just, I don't understand at all. But, you know, there, there seems to be this new philosophy of just borrow more. If you're a rich country, you can just borrow more and everything will be okay because we've discovered this new type of economics that says, you can borrow as much as you want and you don't have to repay it. Now, do you guys see uh, something like that as really scary? And does it cause internal discussions of, you know, do we really believe the new macro that is being sprouted uh, by people in our current administration, I, I, maybe I'm giving them too much credit for having a macro theory, uh, but you know, you have stuff like the MMT that people are talking about. How does that play in with ratings? And on the flip side, does it matter for a country like the US that you have terrible leadership versus good responsible leadership? Would that impact the rating or is it just given that this is like, this is a giant ship that's just going to plow along? We assume that the the quality of leadership just can't impact the ratings. I was going to use the metaphor of the Titanic, but then I thought that's probably not the right metaphor of a giant ship to use. Look, this this is a it's a complicated question, but just to, so there are several aspects of this. The one of the things that has debt levels uh, are growing and they're growing, I think in, in, it's not just the US, they're growing across advanced and across emerging markets. And we're probably going to see debt level rise to, we are seeing debt levels rise to new highs of uh, this, this recession and in new highs historically, right? We're talking about the levels for advanced countries that we last saw during the, the Second World War. So very, very high debt levels across a large number of countries. And what's allowed those debt levels to, to still be uh, sustained, if you will, over the last decade is, is the interest rate trends. So the, as, as debt to GDP ratios have gone up uh, in advanced economies, if you actually look at the time series of uh, interest rates, interest payments, either interest payments to revenue or any measure of, of uh, debt servicing capacity, that's actually come down over time. So because of the secular decline in interest rates, which uh, it's now going on for two decades and, and more, the what's happening, the debt servicing costs for many of these countries are actually falling. 
So as new debt is being issued, it's issued at lower, lower rates. So the overall debt servicing costs are still coming down. And that is supporting the, the debt rate repayment capacity uh, for these countries. And I think you could have, uh, and, and there should be sort of our debates about, yes, you maybe we've expanded the, the, the fiscal space uh, for these economies. Is that space unlimited? Probably not. Uh, I think there's plenty of examples uh, in history where countries are defaulting on, on local currency debt. So it's not uh, it's not all about external debt. Uh, there are plenty of examples where, you know, if you push sort of domestic debt expansion and uh, issuing of, of domestic currency, you you eventually hit sort of the risk that the value of the currency starts depreciating. Uh, again, I think. It, this world where interest rates are going down and they're going to be near zero bounds for the next at least two years, if not much longer uh, going forward, allows countries to carry to carry larger debt loads uh, without some of these other effects. We, we saw, um, just to shift gears a bit, um, back to the sudden stop that we experienced in March. Uh, so... so um, one of the stories that we often hear, I think, when thinking about the the likelihood of one or, or more sovereign defaults is that central bank intervention has made money cheap. Um, and many people seem to have the view that that is sort of the new normal and is going to last for an extended period of time. So I'm wondering um, how ratings agencies think about these um, sort of kinds of sudden alterations in the kind of tra credit trajectory. Um, are there are there warning signs that that are are sort of way into to ratings. Is there some effort made to forecast the future in that way, or um, are these sort of, sort of sufficiently unpredictable events that they don't play a significant role from a ratings perspective? Mark, sorry, I don't think I understood the question. Are, are you asking about sort of the external extraordinary support that central banks are providing? Yeah. yeah so yeah. I. I that was, it was a confusing question. I guess I'm, so I am puzzled by, since we just had a sort of major seize up in credit markets in March, I am puzzled by the confidence I often encounter that these massive central bank, central bank interventions have made another situation like that unlikely. Um, and so I'm indirectly, I guess, trying to get you to express an opinion on that, but I'm trying to frame my question as if I'm really asking about ratings methodology. Oh, can I ask a non-ratings methodology question in there with Mark? Please, please, please. Oh, <laughs> go go ahead. So, Elena, like Mark, I've heard very smart friends who study the economy say, you know, we don't have to worry about another sudden stop. See, we, we, we uh, dealt with the first one so well, and it's just, you know, everything's gonna come in hand. Are you scared about the future of the sovereign markets or are you confident that we've weathered the storm? 
we have not weathered the storm. I think <laughs> put 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 that that view up front. I think and maybe maybe there's there's a bit of a kind of disconnect between the real economy and the markets. So let me let me address one and then I'll, I'll bridge to the other. We had this very sharp uh, recession. We had a very sharp rebound on the back of it, and the rebound in many ways is. The, the, it's it's incomplete, so we have not come back to where we were pre-coronavirus crisis. We have found out that we're going to have to live with the virus for a long time going forward, and we are also in a situation where the recovery has slowed down. So you're seeing on the back of, of course, the uh, it's related to the second wave of infections that you're seeing across countries, potential reposition of, of government restrictions, but you're seeing both on the consumer spending side and on the industrial production side, the recovery is leveling off. So it's going to be a long trudge, if you will, forward, a very, very slow and gradual recovery uh, to, to, to get back to pre-crisis levels. And we don't think we're going to get there until maybe the beginning of 2022 for most countries. So on the back of that, I think the risk to financial stability are significant. And I think they come from you know the the risks uh, the risks from uh, further deterioration in the economic situation and and this risk of very prolonged uh, stagnation is is high and it can be triggered from you know it can triggered from from a second wave of infections with more widespread kind of nationwide uh, lockdowns like what we saw at the beginning of the year it could be triggered by consumers not Kind of fear factor, consumers not re-engaging back in in, in uh, people-facing activities. It could be triggered by the fact that you're looking at the economy going through quite a bit of structural transformation to come on the other side. So uh, you know, digital sectors and are doing uh, very well. Sectors like uh, transportation and travel and tourism are not going to recover for another couple of years forward. So there's a lot of adjustment that needs to happen. Uh, in the economy for us to come out on the other side. So with that as a background, financial stability risks uh, uh, have not gone away. And, you know, central banks have played a very large role, I think, in stabilizing markets. And they have provided, you know, extraordinary amounts of, of support to all parts of the uh, the corporate markets. The, uh, and I think some of that has fed into the sovereign um, markets. And that played, I think, a role in, uh, a large role in, the fact that uh, capital flows to emerging markets uh, stabilized and, and some of them came back uh, after the, the shock in, in March, uh, April. But I think that risk is still there. And also the, the return of uh, capital flows is very uneven across countries. So I think the large emerging markets uh, have generally uh, come back. The, uh, some of the frontier markets and kind of the more challenged uh, countries are still seeing much tighter financing conditions. So, so for them, for them, I think uh, funding risks are still are still high. Thank you very much for for that, Elena. Um, especially uh, me too. I guess showed that um, maybe I was wrong to try to weasel my question in as if it were about ratings methodology. But let me let me try again with a, a slightly um, a different question, and maybe this can be the one that we end on uh, since we've taken up so much of your time already. But so it seems. Uh, unquestionable uh, that, as you say, we're not sort of out of the woods 
in terms of economic risks. And I'm wondering, and the subtext for this question is the, the Eurozone in particular, I'm wondering if you think the same is true about the political risks there. And by political risks, I mean in particular that it seems to me that um, many observers of Euro area debt are optimistic, not just about central bank intervention uh, by the ECB, but um, seem to have a high degree of confidence that the um, there will continue to be broad-based political support among Euro area governments governments to keep credit conditions loose. Um, do you share that that confidence that the there is now a relatively cohesive political view that will support continued uh, um, interventions that are favorable for countries like Italy that would otherwise be um, be uh, quite problematic from a debt perspective? You know, I think the economic consensus is that we will get uh, more support if required. So in some respect, I think policymakers are, policymakers are calibrating the amounts, the amount of uh, support provided to to kind of what's happening with the recovery. And I, I, I think we do believe that if uh, if the recovery falters, we will get more more support provided. Well, thank you so much for for. Uh, that and for joining us. It was um, uh, a huge treat for me. I think I can speak for me too as well in saying that. But um, thank you so much for, for coming and giving us so much of your time. And teaching us. And this is really educational. I, but I, Elena, this is not a real question. Uh, but I was telling one of my students uh, today that I was excited about us getting to talk to you uh, because uh, ratings are something that students always ask questions about and I, I just kind of mumble, pretending to know stuff. I thought, today I'll actually learn. But the question that uh, the student asked me was, what's it like to work at a rating agency for sovereigns? Do you, you're just constantly flying to a gorgeous <laughs> island, I go to Fiji because I got to do a rating for them. And then next I'm on a plane to Mauritius. And I mean, if that's the case, uh, I, I really would like to come and get a job there if if you have any openings. New Fascinating, please, please come and join us. Ellen <laughs> <laughs> uh, does not answering our question about what like to be a jet setting ratings agency head so but thank you so much this was a special treat and it's so kind of you i know you guys are very busy these days so thank you for coming to talk to us thank you thank you so much for having me